This is the story. The strange story of a time-honored custom that started as an old man's cunning ruse. And you'll hear another story. The fabulous story of the man who made a career out of his daydreams. Yes, this is the story. The streets of the city of Lisbon echoed with the sound of marching men in the spring of 1808. And for the citizens of the Portuguese capital, it was a hated sound. Yes, hated. For the men who marched in the streets of Lisbon were not Portuguese soldiers. They were French. Soldiers of the army of Napoleon that occupied the city. With the occupation of their capital by foreign troops, the people of Portugal were paying the traditional penalty for having lost a war. And so as the conquerors' patrols marched through the city, the people peered darkly from behind the shutters of their homes and their eyes smoldered with hatred. But for old Juan de Gama, it was not enough for the people of Lisbon to silently curse the French with their venomous glances. They must prepare for the day when they would rise up and free themselves from French rule. To his son, old Juan would declare with fierce patriotism, Yes, yes, we must prepare to fight for our freedom. But in reply, the old man's son would merely shake his head dolefully. Yes, Papa. But I mingle with the people more than you do. I know their tempers, their state of mind. Though they hate the French, they no longer expect their freedom. They have come to accept foreign rule, even though begrudgingly. Old Juan's son pointed out these facts of life to his father, saying that the people had no hope. No hope? Ah, but they must have hope. They must. And old Juan's son would agree. Yes, but how, Papa? How can that hope be kept alive? And each time he asked the question, the old man would wag his head sadly. I do not know, my son. I do not know. Then he would go out into the barnyard of the little farm he owned on the outskirts of Lisbon, and taking a small bag of grain that hung on a hook in the shed, he would step into his chicken coop to feed the poultry that was his means of livelihood. Old Juan took great pride in his chickens, and well he might, for the eggs they laid and which he sold in the marketplace were considered to be the finest in Lisbon. So fine, indeed, that the general commanding the French occupation forces would tolerate no others on his breakfast table. Old Juan had to take the eggs to the general's house personally, so the French officer was certain that he was getting no substitutes. This daily mission angered the old man, but he had no choice... He was, after all, one of a conquered people. But as his chickens flocked about him while he tossed them grain, the old man was not thinking of poultry or eggs or the French general who liked them so. He was thinking of the people of Lisbon and what his son had said about them, that they had no faith in their eventual liberation. If he could but instill some hope in them, old one thought, if the people could but receive some sign, some portent, to show them that one day they would be free again. And it was then, just as he was gathering the eggs, which he would take to the home of the French general, that he had his idea. He smiled at the thought as he stood there, staring at a large snow-white egg. Quietly, he said, Yes, yes, that is what I'll do. The word of it will spread, and the people will know that someday the flag of Portugal will fly again over their heads, and they will have hope. The next morning, when the French general had risen, bathed, and dressed, he rang for his breakfast to be brought to his desk. His morning meal was not in the strictest sense of the word breakfast. The Frenchman's stomach had long given him trouble, and his doctor had prescribed a diet of one raw egg to start the day. 
And so the general's orderly entered, carrying a tray that bore but a single uncooked egg and a cup into which the officer himself liked to crack it. With the tray set before him, the general plucked the egg from a plate, but he did not break it. Instead, he held it in his hand, staring at it with wide-eyed astonishment. Finally, he asked, What is this? Some joke? The orderly looked at the egg the general held in his hand. On it, someone had painted in vivid colors the flag of the free and sovereign state of Portugal. The general handed the egg back to the orderly and ordered him to bring him another, saying brusquely, I do not understand this. But the people of Lisbon understood it on the following day when the church bells rang. For that day happened to be Sunday and the greatest religious holiday of the year. And the news spread quickly that the French general who ruled them had received an egg on which had been painted the Portuguese flag. What did it mean, many people asked old Juan de Gama. And the old man had a ready explanation. It is a sign, a sign from heaven that we shall someday be free that the Portuguese flag shall fly again. And the old man was quick to point out the egg's appearance on the most holy of days could not be an accident, could not be the sheerest coincidence. I tell you, it is a sign from heaven. So when the people of Lisbon crowded into their churches, they did so with renewed hope and firm certainty that they would soon be worshipping as a free people. And though it was three years before the French withdrew from Portugal, the people of that land never lost hope that they would someday regain their sovereignty. Old Juan de Gama did his work well. Yes, so well, in fact, that there sprang up a custom which, with the passing of the years, spread to countries throughout the world. And though its significance has been forgotten, it is a custom that is still observed on our greatest religious holiday. For the day on which Juan de Gama's painted egg first appeared was Easter Sunday. And that egg on which the old man had painted the Portuguese flag as an omen of his people's liberation was the first Easter egg. This is the story. From down in fog-shrouded San Francisco Bay came the monotonous, deep-throated croaking of a foghorn. The sound of it sifted through the window of the young newspaper cartoonist's office. His work was done, his cartoon drawn for that day's paper, and so he let himself succumb to the morphine effect of the lonesome horn, letting his mind drift where it would. And as it so often did in those daydreams of his, it went back to that day but a few years before, when as a young baseball pitcher, he had received the most joyous news of his life. He could still hear himself gasp with delight. You, you mean John McGraw's going to give me a chance to pitch for the Giants? A chance to pitch for the New York Giants. As the cartoonist recalled that day, a smile played on his lips. That had been the one thing, the only thing he had ever wanted from life. He remembered with what confidence he had faced his future. His future as a big league pitcher. And then... The sound of the foghorn, low and mournful, seemed quite in keeping with his thoughts as a dark frown stole across the young artist's face. His recollections had abruptly turned from what had been the happiest day in his life to the saddest, to the day the doctor had examined his injured arm and said, You got a bad break there, son. I'm afraid you better forget about ever being a pitcher. Forget about being a pitcher. The cartoonist remembered the words with a bitter smile. He could have easily forgotten his own name, as he could have forgotten the one great ambition of his life. When the broken arm had healed, he tried, oh, how hard he tried, to regain his old form, his old speed, his old cunning. But it had gone, escaped him forever. He would never pitch again. 
He stared out the window by his drawing board there in the newspaper office. Now, all he had was his dreams. Dreams like the fog that swirled about outside, gray and misty and sad. But no, that was not quite all. He had his talent to draw, and that helped. Not only had it given him a means of making a living when his future as a baseball player had been shattered, but it had given him something else. He opened a drawer and pulled out a piece of drawing paper. On it were figures of baseball players he had drawn, sketches of players who had performed some odd, unusual, out-of-the-way feat in the history of the national pastime that the cartoonist loved so well. He had drawn many such cartoons. He had even given the series a name, a provocative name in keeping with its unusual subject matter. Not that he'd ever thought of having the cartoons published. That was not the point or purpose of them. They were, well, just pen and ink manifestations of his daydreams. The sudden jangle of his telephone ended the artist dreaming. His editor was on the wire, summoning the young man to his office to discuss the next day's cartoon. The artist hurried out of his own cubbyhole, forgetting to replace his baseball cartoon in his drawer. Nor did he notice that it lay on top of the cartoon that was scheduled to be used in that day's paper. In fact, he thought no more about it until an hour later he returned and with sickening realization saw what had happened. The cartoon he had drawn for the newspaper was still there, but the other one, the one drawn for his own amusement, was gone. He gasped, Holy smoke, I've got to stop that! And dashed from his office, banging open the door. But the moment he stepped into the editorial room, he knew it was too late to stop the cartoon from being printed, for an office boy handed him a copy of the first edition. Quickly, frantically, the cartoonist thumbed through the paper. And there, there where the other cartoon should have been, was one of his daydreams. Holy smoke, I'll get fired for this. With a hard lump of fear in his throat, the cartoonist returned to his office to await the inevitable jangle of his telephone. It rang right on schedule. The young man lifted the receiver with trembling hands. And from the other end of the line, heard his editor roar. Come in here and be quick about it. A moment later, he stood before the editor's desk. Was he responsible for this, the editor demanded, thumping the cartoon in the newspaper with an insistent finger? Yes, sir. Then he ought to be fired, the other man barked. But the editor added, with his fierce scowl softening into a pleased grin, he liked the young man's cartoon so well that he was going to give him another chance on one condition. One condition, sir? What's that? The editor answered him quickly. The one condition was that the cartoon became a regular feature of the newspaper. The young man beamed. Yes, sir. And thanks. Thanks a lot. And so the artist's cartoon, the pen and ink drawing of a daydream, became a regular feature of the paper. And its popularity grew until it was carried in scores of newspapers all over the country. And the success which greeted the young man's idea staggered him. For little did he think when he drew his daydreams, that they would make him one of the most popular cartoonists in America as a creator of the cartoon, believe it or not. Yes, the young man who made a career out of a daydream was Robert Ripley. This is the story. <laughs>